morning. Uh, we're reading from Romans 15, 1 through 7 this morning. Romans 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The word of the Lord. Today is our last uh, of the one another's the last uh, message on it. Hopefully we're just getting started trying to figure out how to do this and practice the one another's. Um, we will begin next Sunday, we'll dive back into our summer in the Psalms. So since 2013, we have been walking through the book of Psalms together and um, this would be, I guess, our seventh year uh, or is this our eighth year? Yeah, whatever it is. Uh, so we're in Psalm 60, and we're going to finish the Psalms by the time Jesus returns. That's the plan. Like, that's our hope. Lord, come quickly. It's okay if we don't finish the Psalms. Um, so we'll be in 60 next Sunday, 61, 62. So you can read ahead and uh, be preparing your heart for the Word, and hopefully you'll... Uh, I love that rhythm of the summer in the Psalms, so hopefully it'll be a blessing to you. Our final uh, one another is to live in harmony with one another. To live in harmony. With, I was reminded this morning, or just thinking about, when would be the best time to teach on and practice unity and harmony? Um, would it be before the crisis hits? You know, prior to the crisis, practicing unity and harmony? Or do you think it would be easier to discover it in the moment of the crisis and practice it then? I think it's probably better to practice, practice, practice before game time, before that crisis and that moment. So thankfully, here we are, and we're not preaching on unity because there's division in the church. We're not preaching on unity and harmony because we're trying to call somebody out, anything like that, okay? We're, we're thinking about this because it is a call to the church, it's, it's a very significant one another, uh, and, and, the, and the apostles, God is calling us through his word to pursue harmony with one another, harmony and unity, and, and I think just like in so many other ways in life, practice, practice, practice before game time will make it far more effective when the crisis or the conflict or the division comes, because because any relationship will always experience conflict. Churches will always experience conflict. That's not the question. The question is how will we work through different opinions and conflict and challenges that can often be divisive. Uh, so, so we saved this one for last because unity by definition ties things together, right? Unity by definition, holds things together. And so we want to think about, and hopefully this 
this last one another will tie back into, and you'll feel it tying everything together in our one another uh, series. So I want to walk you through the first seven verses of Romans 15 and observe four, uh, four truths about gospel unity. Four truths about gospel unity. Unity is a gift from God. Unity requires pleasing someone else first. Unity, third, comes through endurance. And fourth, unity is like a beautiful song. Let's think about those this morning. Um, number one, unity is a gift from God. Let's start with verse five, where Paul offers this prayer on behalf of the church. You could read it as a prayer or a blessing. Um, I think you could read it either way. There is a difference between a prayer and a blessing, but I think most commentators see Paul praying for the church at Rome in verse five. And here's what he prays. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, notice this expression in verse five. May God grant you harmony and unity. May God gift you. Uh, Paul is praying for God to give, pray, Paul is praying that God would gift the church unity. He, he's praying for this treasured thing, um, and he's praying for harmony, and, and, and he's asking, the language is grant, the language is give, the language is gifting. May God grant you at the church in Rome to live in such harmony with one another. So I think we want to say from the very beginning, unity comes from God. Unity is a gift from God. Unity begins with God. May God grant this to you. Unity is a treasured gift. In the, like, unity is a treasured gift. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we deserve. It is a gift of God's kindness to the church. You and I, I tend to, you, this is probably true of you too, we tend to presume on gifts. Do you ever find yourself presuming on gifts? Like presuming that some, like on your birthday or on Father's Day or on Mother's Day or during Christmas season? Do you ever find yourself kind of presuming on, on the gift? I mean, you've already added it to your Amazon shopping, your, I mean, your Amazon uh, uh, gift list, right? You know, just, just in case you were wondering, here's the link, right? So do you ever find yourself kind of presuming on gifts? What happens when you presume on a gift? It ruins the moment doesn't it? it? It ruins the moment because I lose my focus. You lose your focus. You, you, if you're not careful, you get more concerned and more interested in the gift than the person who's giving you the gift. And the older you get and the more things you send off to the yard sale pile and the more things that you just find yourself being able to live without, the more you realize the gift is not quite as important as who? As the person who was giving you the gift. And then all of a sudden, a simple little gift that should mean very little because someone important to you is giving it becomes really significant. The person giving the gift always matters more than the gift. And that's where Paul's going here. Paul, Paul wants us to understand that God himself is the one who grants unity. God himself is the one who can bless the church with this treasure. That means that God is more important than unity itself. And, and a God-centeredness about our thinking on unity is very important. 
So unity is a gift from God. And then I got to thinking, so why is that important, practically speaking, for the church? Like, why, what, what is, why is it important that unity has to begin with God? Because you and I cannot make each other pliable, and we can't, we can't make each other play nicely. We can't bend each other's wills toward what we think is the most important. In fact, what we think is the most important thing that should happen may, may even be the wrong thing. So here's why unity has to begin with God, because only God can make our hearts truly pliable toward one another. I, I might be willing to bend my will toward those that I love the most. You might be willing to bend your will toward those you love the most. But what about the weaker brother? or the person of another perspective, the person of another ethnicity or race who doesn't see things the same way that you do? Or what about somebody who just rubs you the wrong way? I just, you know, I just don't connect with him. That's code for he rubs me the wrong way. How, how are we gonna do this? How does the body of Christ, practically speaking, have the potential to unite so many different kinds of people? I think the answer is because God is the one, not us. Because when, when we do it, we're all, the try, we're all the time, when we try to do this, we're all the time kind of betraying our own self-interest. But God is the one who's only, only God is the one who can make every heart in the room truly pliable. And by His Spirit, He softens and, and He works and He shapes. And so the imagery in Romans that Paul uses is that, the, is that the potter is at work shaping the clay. And he works the clay and he kneads the clay and he presses into and he makes hearts pliable. And he's, you know, it, it, it's never the case. The, 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 the clay should never say, Paul, Paul in Romans, the clay should never say to the potter, why are you making me like this? I don't want to be like this. What would it look like if in our pursuit of unity, God took each of us and put us up on the wheel and he began to spin and shape and add water and mold and press and, and we kept yielding and we kept yielding and he kept shaping, right? That's, that's where Paul's headed here. Unity starts with God because no one else has the power and the integrity and the ability to shape us each in the image of Christ, each in a way that would, that would be good for every single one of us. Only God can do that. That's why unity has to start with God. When a whole room full of people, when a whole room full of people when a church family decides, I'm going to plop myself up on the wheel and let God reshape and remold me no matter what it costs me, in my own thinking, in my own perspective, that church, man, that church can be shaped into the image of Christ. And so unity begins with God, I think, for that reason. It's a gift from God. It begins with God. He alone has the power, integrity, and ability to shape us as he wants to, and we should never say, as the clay to the potter, what are you doing here, God? I'm not interested in that. I mean, that may be our hearts being revealed, but we would want to quickly yield 
right? Secondly, unity, uh, Paul, Paul helps me to see in this passage that unity in an incredibly practical way means that I'm pleasing someone else first. It'd be easy to say to yourself, okay, unity is a gift from God, right? Point number one, unity is a gift from God, so if he gives us unity, great. If not, we'll just kind of be who we are. There's not anything we really do to, to foster this. There's nothing. No, no, wait. There is definitely something we should be doing. There, you're probably already asking yourself, okay, unity is a gift from God, but don't I have a part to play in this? Absolutely, you have a part to play in it. Unity requires pleasing someone else in a very practical way. One of the things that you can do to pursue unity is to follow Jesus Christ into the way of the cross to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Imitating Jesus' willingness to suffer for someone else's good. Imitating Jesus' willingness to suffer for the good of others. That's where, that's where Paul is, verses one, two, and three. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So I'm in Romans 15, verse one. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Let each of us please his neighbor for her good to build up the other person. For Christ did not please himself as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now what's Paul doing here? He's talking about the strong and the weak. What, what's going on here in verses one, two, and three? Well, to get that, you've gotta back up into chapter 14 because chapter 15 and verse one is, is a bit of an artificial break there. Uh, the chapter break in 15.1 probably should be a little further down. So Paul has been making a case throughout Romans 14 for how the strong and weak should interact. So let me give you a little more context and back up to chapter 14, verse one. And as you do, remember that the church in Rome has a variety of cultural backgrounds. They did not all have the same perspective. They did not have the, the, the same upbringing. They did not have the same cultural perspective on eating meat, on drinking wine, and on observing the Lord's day. So they've got different perspectives, and Paul says, as, as he's helping the church at Rome navigate their different opinions and perspectives on the law, Paul says in verse one of chapter 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, accept him, not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. Verse five, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. This would include the Sabbath and other holy days. Each one should be fully, look at verse, the end of verse five, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. What's Paul doing here? All throughout chapter 14 and up to chapter 15, Paul is making a case that it's the conscience of each believer 
that needs to be in a balanced, worshipful place. He's addressing the freedom. He's addressing that the freedom, the freedom that believers now have in Christ since Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. And he's especially speaking to the stronger brothers who have discovered freedom that some of the other brothers have not, and sisters have not yet discovered, eating meat or drinking wine or, or observing a particular day or not observing a particular day. He's, he's, he's speaking to the stronger brothers who've discovered freedom not to be an offense, not to cause offense to the weaker brother. Never to cause, look at verse 21, to never cause another brother or sister to stumble in the name of one's own freedom. It reminds, you, it reminds us of Galatians chapter five. Don't, don't let the, your freedom that you have in Christ divide the body, he says. He's calling for maturity. He's calling for discernment. He's calling for the right application of freedom in Christ. Now, when you get to chapter 15, verse 1, that's the context. That's the, that's the flow of this. So when you drop back into chapter 15, verse 1, it says, we who are strong then have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We should please our neighbor for his upbuilding, for his good, for her good. Now, what's the main reason for Paul's argument in verse 3? See if you can track this. What's the main thing Paul is using as his argument as to why you should care more about your neighbor than yourself? In, in, in your freedoms, in exercising your Christian freedoms. His main, main reasoning is Jesus himself. Right, this is where that Sunday school answer is right on the money. Like It's Jesus. You got it. Jesus did not please himself, but instead, look, instead, as it is written, Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is the gospel in a verse. Like over and over again in the Bible, you will find the gospel in a verse. Just, you'll find these key gospel elements all captured in one place, like one, one potent shot of the gospel. That's what this is. He's, he's quoting Psalm 69, and the, the reference is to the Messiah who's letting, allowing the insults, sarcasm, and mockery of God to fall on him. Like the, the people of the world are insulting God, uh, 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 mocking God, making fun of God, and the Messiah says, I, I will, the, the Messiah says, I will let the mockery, the sarcasm, the insults, I will let them fall on me. Forgive them, Father. They don't have any idea of what they're doing. They don't know. Beautiful combination of pity and compassion and understanding that Christ shows in his life and in his death. So Paul says, 
He's like thinking of the strongest argument he can make for the church at Rome that has all these varying backgrounds and opinions and try to figure out how to live with one another and not be upset with each other because certain people are eating meat, certain people are drinking wine, certain people don't know how to celebrate the Sabbath. He's like, how are we going to do this? And so listen here, I, I want you to remember something. Christianity is not about pleasing yourself. You should be more interested in caring for the good of another person. Remember Jesus. Who was the embodiment of letting the reproaches that were being hurled at God fall on him? He would bear, he would bear the suffering. This is the gospel in a verse. He would bear the suffering. Paul then is saying to those who think of themselves as more mature in the body of Christ, to discover in the suffering of Jesus the power of not pleasing oneself. So just as Jesus was willing to take on himself the insults and mocking that people were directing at God, so the stronger, more mature brothers and sisters should be willing to serve and bless those who are passing judgment on them. They should be willing to bear with and be patient with those who seem to love the law more than Christ. To bear with them and not return the favor of judgment. Not to pass judgment back on them, because that's kind of what we do. You send judgment across the court, nice overhand, and then I send judgment back. And we volley judgment back and forth and back and forth until somebody scores the ace, you know. Paul says that is not how the body of Christ works. And so instead of sending judgment back and forth across the court, the the cross itself, Jesus' death, becomes this thing that stands in between. And when that happens, the cross of Jesus, like, it intercepts and short circuits all of this immature way of living. So when you have a church full, so this is the gospel moment that I'm trying to suggest. When you have a church full of people who are willing to bear insults and not return the favor, willing to be misunderstood, willing to bear sarcasm and not give it back, willing to be gossiped about and not return the favor, when you have something like that going on, now you've got the potential for unity. Now you've got the potential for unity. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but, but the cross intercepts that stuff. And so names, name calling and misunderstanding and sarcasm and all that doesn't hurt me anymore. So if we as a church, again, this is practice. I'm not preaching to anybody who needs to get right. Are you with me? This is practice. If we as a church could practice pleasing pleasing the Lord by not pleasing ourselves and following Christ, if we as a church could practice diligently, let each one please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. If you could enter into the way of the cross, the suffering of Christ that was willing to let reproach, misunderstanding, all this kind of stuff be heaped on him, if you could somehow mysteriously enter into that and not 
return the judgment, then all of a sudden, man, we practice that over and over again. Unity has the potential to blossom and, and, and unity has the potential to powerfully help this congregation discover the gospel in ways we've never discovered it before. Unity requires pleasing somebody else. Here's number three. That was the long one. Does it make you feel better? <laughs> that was the long one. Number three. Unity comes through endurance. Now, I, I did not see this. It took me a little while to see this because I, I was scratching my head on what, why is Paul talking about endurance in this passage? Did you notice that when you were reading it? I mean, he's talking about Clearly, he's talking about unity and harmony and one voice. He's talking about pleasing others before you please yourself. And, he throws, and then he throws in the, at the beginning of his prayer, may the God of endurance and encouragement do this. Like, why, why, was, why wouldn't you pray to the God who is holy to do this? Or why wouldn't you pray to the God who is three in one to do this? Like, why, why the God of endurance? I was just scratching my head on that for a couple days. What do you think? Why, why, what is the connection between endurance and unity? What's the connection? So it, I, was, I was a little slow on the uptake, but, the, but then once I saw it, I was like, well, it couldn't be more obvious. I mean, once you see it, it can't be more obvious, right? What is it? Enduring with one another over time. See if you agree with this. Enduring with one another over time creates a bond unlike anything else. Think about that. I think that's why Paul is praying to the God of endurance. Like, he's thinking about the church at Rome, and he's saying, man, you are the God who has endured through the ages. You, you are the God of endurance. Help your people to endure with one another. When we love one another, serve one another, make charitable judgments toward one another, forgive one another, when we do all these one another's, what's happening is we're activating the gospel and we're producing a strong, lasting bond with one another that can't be so easily you know, broken. And, and this, here's why this is important, because endurance, endurance, I think, endurance and longevity used to be valued a little more historically than they are today and not every person but culturally for the most part the temperature in a culture like our own country a hundred years ago people valued endurance and longevity and commitment in a way they simply don't today endurance in relation let me say it this way endurance in relationships is incredibly undervalued in our present culture. So it might mean working for the same company. It might be staying married to the same person. It might be promising yourself to the same local church. But in all of these relationships, today people simply do not value longevity and endurance as they used to. I think that the average churchgoer these days sees very little value in long-term commitment. I just, I see it all the time. 
The average person, I mean, you can go, you can look at, you can look at any denomination, you can look at any, you can look at any Pew Foundation study, you can look at any other demographic study, you will see over and over and over again that the average churchgoer these days sees very little value in long-term commitment, right? Things get a little bumpy, start looking for another church, plenty of church options, and plenty of church options, just things get a little challenging, um, church goes through a little bit of conflict, and people scatter that's what we do on the other hand if you were to choose to pursue peace deepen trust even if you've been burned before if you were to guard your desires from becoming demands if you were to learn how to hold loosely the things that you gripped so tightly in the past you would find endurance to be your friend you would find some things that you've never before experienced in Christ. You would find endurance to be your friend. And as you endure, the God of endurance would give you hope and grant. And that's why Paul's praying, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord and concert with Christ Jesus that together you would with one voice. Look at this. May he grant you hope. So unity is a gift. Unity requires pleasing someone else. Third, unity comes through endurance. And endurance is worth pursuing. Here's number four. Unity is like a beautiful song. So go into verses five and six again with me. To live in harmony with one another. Just look at, the, uh, look at the unity language here. Look at the unity language. To live in harmony with one another, in accord, in concert with Christ, and so that together with one voice you could glorify God. Like three times Paul, toward the end of this passage, is going after unity. Three times in, this, in the language of this text, Paul is, is describing uh, the beauty of, of unity. So unity, I think, uh, one way to put it would be unity is like a beautiful song. Unity is what enables many distinct voices to sing one beautiful harmony, right? It's, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not the duplicating of one voice. Oh, like, oh, she's got an amazing, beautiful voice. Man, we should just clone her, right? No, that would not, that you, wouldn't, you wouldn't feel the harmony in that. You just wouldn't feel the harmony in that. You wouldn't feel the, the distinct, unique, image-bearing voices producing one satisfying harmony. Um, Sue Munson was helping with me a little bit about uh, what, what is called timbre, you know, in vocal, in, in, in singing and in music and in vocalizing. So she says this, Sue, Sue wrote this to me in a text in between services. Each voice created by God has unique timbre, unique overtones, and joining them is what creates the power we feel and experience as we sing. If you don't join those voices and the uniqueness of those voices, you won't feel the song, you won't feel the harmony. I was thinking, and I mentioned this in the first service, about a really great harmony. 
like in music. Like you probably, when you think of a great harmony in music, you have a song that you like. For me, it's the Eagles, Seven Bridges Road, which by the way, I think they just used as a warm-up song early on and didn't realize it was gonna be one of their most famous songs. So I, I like Seven Bridges Road when I think about a tight harmony. You got a song in your mind. Think about that song you like that has a really tight harmony, uh, an amazing, in fact, the, when you hear that song, the harmony's so good and so clean, you're like, man, this feels almost, like almost transcendent. It takes you to another place. That's what Paul has in mind here. Paul's talking about a harmony that with one voice, so many distinct, unique, different voices together, they, 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 they say this, the same thing in their own voice. And when they do, it's a beautiful, amazing harmony that kind of takes us up into another world. It's, it's transcendent. It's beautiful. It's compelling. That's the kind of harmony that God wants for His church. The kind of unity and harmony that draws people up into another world. A world that is energized by the glory of God. Look at that in this passage. That together with one voice you would glorify God and, and the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another, verse 7, as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God. The glory of God is what Paul's saying here is, is where this thing's headed. All these voices combine to harmonize and make a beautiful sound to what end? To what purpose? They glorify God. They bring glory to God. A world that is energized by the glory of God. It's like we're being, it's like we're being pulled up into this more beautiful, glorious thing, which is God himself. So the glory of God emphasis in verses 6 and 7 reminds us, or better, teaches us that unity is not the ultimate goal. If unity is the ultimate goal, you'll end up missing something. Unity is not the ultimate goal. And diversity is not the ultimate goal. I think Paul has both in mind in this passage. He has unity in mind, no question about that. He says it over and over again, harmony voices coming together in concert with Jesus. That's all harmony, that's all unity language. He's got unity in mind, but he also clearly has diversity in mind, therefore accept one another. And so I was just thinking about this cultural moment that we're in and how racial diversity is challenging so many churches. Some churches are afraid of the diversity challenge. Some churches are pursuing racial diversity and would love to go faster but don't know what their next steps are and they're trying to do it with balance and beauty and under God's, in God's will and in concert with their, you know, kind of geographical context. I would put us there. Other churches are doing really well with pursuing racial diversity. But we, I think we want to follow the Apostle Paul here in that we can't, we don't want unity to be the goal, nor do we want diversity to be the ultimate goal. I was talking with um, Evan and Lisa Spencer after the first service 
And Lisa was saying, yeah, because if unity is the ultimate goal, here's what happens. And if diversity is the ultimate goal, here's what happens. And we're both agreeing that the beauty of what Paul does here is he says, neither one of those are the ultimate goal. What is the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is to the glory of God. And yes, you can't glorify the Lord without having a united and diverse people. And the more unity you have through diversity, the more beautiful and glorious it is in terms of honoring God. But those things are not the ultimate goal. God is the ultimate goal, and His glory is the ultimate goal. The more diverse a church is, the more, the more racially diverse a church is, the more beautifully it displays the power of the gospel for all people, every tribe and tongue and nation. And so, yes, we should pursue unity and we should pursue diversity, but those are our ways to maximize the glory of God. And that's the point that, John, that Paul, I don't think, wants us to miss. Like what we should be, the maximum, the ultimate maximum target, at, uh, the target on the horizon is the glory of God. Now, how do we get there? We get there by pursuing unity and diversity in a beautiful balance. So, Paul says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it's about us worshiping God to His glory, for His glory. Therefore, verse 7, accept one another. Why do you think you're better than, why do you think you're better than her? Why do you think you're better than him? You're not. Accept one another, Paul says. Bear with one another. Love one another. Please your neighbor for his good to build him up. Therefore, accept one another as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't profile you before he said, I'll let you in? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say, you know what, um, we're only taking people that are a certain height and weight, who look a certain way. We're only taking college graduates and just down the list. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, I'm only interested in these kind of people, boom, 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 boom. Therefore, accept one another as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God. So will you pray with me? God, we pray that you would wash from us all these things that keep us from pursuing beautiful unity and diversity. And, and they don't bring you glory. They bring you dishonor. Jesus, we thank you that we didn't have to have a certain GPA we didn't have to look a certain way. We didn't have to have a certain amount of money. We just needed to recognize how bankrupt and helpless we are apart from your saving rescue. Thank you that the reproaches fell on you. 
Would you bring the gospel alive to us again today? By your spirit, help us to sing in faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.